Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guests are going to be talking about, well, if journalism is the first draft of history, I think we could call this the second draft of history. They're both the authors, or in one case co-author, of books that are kind of journalistic books about things that have more or less only just happened. So hot off the press, we have James Heal, who is the Spectator's diary editor and co-author with the Sun's political editor, Harry Cole, of a new book called Out of the Blue, the Inside Story of the Unexpected Rise and Rapid Fall of Liz Truss, and another Spectator alumnus, the FT Sebastian Payne, whose own new book is called The Fall of Boris Johnson, The Fool Story. Now, both of you, I suppose the first person I should come to is James, because his book is even more recent. Well, the book's not more recent, but the events it describes are more recent. Your book was notoriously overtaken by events. In fact, I don't think the original title was going to have the word (laughs) fall in it at all, was it? No. When we started writing, it was a fortnight before she became prime minister, when it was clear she was going to win that conservative leadership contest. And so I think... We and most of Westminster envisaged she'd be in power for two years until the next election. That was very much the assumption of it. And so we began writing as the rise of Liz Truss and talking about who this woman was and perhaps looking ahead to what her premiership might look like. As it was, we ended up finishing on the day she walked out of number 10. Uh, We extended the deadline a little bit. And yeah, the last day, it ends with her driving off into the sunset at the end of an extraordinary 50-day premiership in British political history. Did that mean sort of going through, I mean, publishing schedules being what they are, were you able to go through the whole manuscript and, for example, you know, insert the word not in various kind of <laughs> complimentary notes about her political acumen and so forth? Or was it just a new intro and a new outro? It really was just a new intro and a new outro. And we made some jokes about rewriting but really, I mean, you know, huge swathes of her life. I mean, we, we sort of divvied it up as a minister. So looking a chapter on time at justice, her time at trade, those things remain unchanged. And what's actually really interesting is that the clues to perhaps her rise and fall were always there throughout her career. You know, there was perhaps some clear indicators that it might end in tears from, and she might act in a very impulsive way from earlier spells in different departments. So those were largely unchanged. It really was adding a chapter or so at the end. And I think what we'd originally envisaged as a kind of what will trustism look like for the nation, what will Liz Truss's vision be, was just changed into how it all went so badly wrong and those extraordinary last three weeks or so in September, October. Yeah. Now, Sebastian, you know, Boris had fallen by the time you wrote your book about the fall of <laughs> Boris Johnson. But, you know, you two are in the sort of territory where you're in danger of being overtaken by events, not least because early in your book, you describe Boris's defenestration as the most remarkable political defenestration of modern political history. <laughs> do you stand by that? I think I do, actually. And I've obviously read James and Harry's book, which is absolutely fantastic. And it shows two very contrasting political characters that Liz Truss's sort of almost inexplicable rise is the opposite of Boris Johnson's, which was entirely predictable, quite a long time in coming in some respects. But I think the defenestration of Boris is more remarkable than Liz Truss because of that massive election mandate he had in 2019, because of the grip that he has on our national psyche 
they were never things that Liz Truss had, if we're being quite honest. She was a very sort of flitting figure. And I think James's book captures that so well about the fact she sort of came out of nowhere and then disappeared back off into nowhere again. Whereas <laughs> Boris has been in and around the political consciousness for a good 20, if not 30 years by this point. You mentioned it being overtaken by events. Well, of course, we had the weekend where it looked as if Boris Johnson might come back. And the fall of Boris Johnson was just about to go to press. And we had a great debate at my publishers at Pan Macmillan about what we would do in this case. <laughs> and without wanting to delay the book even further or having to significantly rewrite it, we decided our out would be to rename it The Brief Fall of Boris Johnson. And then come the paperback <laughs> or the second edition, we could then add the return. But the way that events transpired that crucial weekend in October where Liz Truss had fallen, Boris Johnson made his way back from the Caribbean and decided that he would try and run again. I mean, from an author's perspective, it was relatively stressful, but then obviously ultimately Mr. Johnson did not run again. And I look forward when I come to the paperback, which will be out the middle of next year, I think, of having a look into what happened on that weekend and why his return never happened. But it might... It might still happen in the future, as I noted at the end of the fall of Boris Johnson, that stranger things have happened. And he does have a great habit of surprising people. And when the chips are down and you think he's finished, he always finds a way of somehow bouncing back. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a sort of books podcast rather than a political one. So I, I'm kind of interested in, in talking a bit about, you know, what this sort of book does, you know, how they're put together. And to start with, I ask... You know, who do you think is the audience for a book like this? I mean, who, do, you know, not to be rude, but who's going to buy these books? Well, I would say that whenever I think of these books, I think of your classic Middle England person who listens to the Today programme in the morning, maybe a little bit grumpy at some of the tone and some of the things they hear about. They maybe occasionally flirt with Times Radio or even LBC if they're feeling particularly racy. And they've got an interest in current affairs you know they they might not buy a regular newspaper maybe perhaps buy some magazines or some weekend papers so they've got an interest in the political ether and then you know they see whether it's Liz Truss or Boris Johnson and think you know what actually I want to know a bit more about that I want to a bit more interesting and they've seen the serializations of my book or James's book and then they think you know what actually that does sound quite good or alternatively someone within their ether is thinking god I really need a Christmas present from that person who's always moaning about how much they hate Radio 4 and they think oh they must like politics I'll go and buy them something about politicians so I always think it's not just Westminster insiders because there's not that many of those people. There's only a couple of thousand who really buy hardcore political biographies. So you've got to go a little bit beyond that. And you've got to look at someone who is interested in current affairs generally and has their interest piqued by particular news events. I mean, I think that it was quite telling. I was on Amazon looking and underneath my book, they said people often buy these books together and it was Seb's book. So obviously the biography of Boris Johnson, the biography of Liz Truss, which wouldn't surprise me hugely. I think the odds are if you're buying this book, there's a tendency that likelihood, sorry, that you that you probably have a book of another prime minister or, or 10 at home. I think Boris as a character is a real widespread appeal. I do think, though, that people were very interested in Liz Truss, certainly. And, I, and one of the audiences which 
I think we're attracting is people from the city and, and the markets, which is very interesting because obviously the markets in some ways broker. She was someone who came up as a, as a free marketeer. And so people in the city I talked to seem to have a real interest in her and, and the decision-making process that went in with the Treasury and making those decisions in terms of tax cuts and spending during September and October and the circumstances which affected those. So that's one thing. Uh, I do think, though, that Seb is correct to say that I think it tends to be a large number of difficult-to-buy for men who might be getting this for their Christmas present because um, <laughs> I've had quite a few uh, women sort of say to me that so they've got a husband or boyfriend or father or something like that who who is interested in politics. So I suspect it'll be for not just the Westminster bubble, but also a more general audience, I hope, as well come Christmas time. On the question of the kind of business model of books like this, Serial is obviously hugely important. And your, your book, James, I know got sort of very splashy serials full of sort of scoops and close in detail. I mean, is the way that you think, you know, that these are scoop-led books, you know, because you're, you're sort of halfway mm. between something that's, which, which is what I'm sort of interested in in this thing. You're halfway between something that's the sort of retrospective, you know, definitive Peter Hennessy style political history that's going to come 10, 15, 20 years into the future even, and something that's still on the sort of edge of, you know, news reporting almost. That's a really good point, and it's something I've thought about. If I could say that I think that if you look, for instance, at the first books on Margaret Thatcher, I think the first one came out in 1975, so just a few months after she was elected, and it's actually really quite sweet if you go and read that. It's about things talking about her as a mother and cooking, and obviously nothing to suggest the kind of Iron Lady of legend of the Charles Moore types that we'd see 15, 20 years later. So obviously there's a danger in sort of in writing books about still contemporary figures. I think that it is a sort of halfway house. What was interesting was talking to people who were involved in the Trust Project who at various times said, well, I don't want you to report on this now or or write anything now but for the book and they were kind of had one eye on posterity when talking talking to harry and i but i think i think that it's about relevance and immediacy and i think that just as so as we've had social media's really sped up the pace of contemporary journalistic practice uh, and things are so much more immediate now and you know government can be hour by hour in the age of twitter i think equally books have reflected that and while we all remember things like you know anthony howard writing about rab butler at the end of his life i think now there's a much more urgent demand i'd say a market for instant examination sebastian is it your experience yeah i think i went through the same thought process as james when i was doing this because my last book broken heartlands was not about a particular figure and it was much more it was a political travel log so it was a book based on research i'd done so i was not necessarily dealing with contemporary events you know the idea for this book on the fall of boris johnson it was partly inspired by a book that was done by alan watkins who was a great political journalist in the middle of the 20th century he wrote a book on the fall of mrs thatcher called a conservative coup which gave us the lovely phrase of the men in gray suits who are the the tory grandees who go and tell a prime minister their Time is over, and that concept has obviously entered political folklore. And I love that book, written very much of a time and of a style, but it's a very good explanation of how Tory politics works. And a friend of mine actually said to me about four months before Boris went, said, you remember that Alan Watkins book? You should try and do something like that. Why don't you keep notes as you go along? Now, I didn't keep notes as I went along because it was such a hectic time. We were just trying to keep our heads above water as political journalists and keep track of events. But then about the beginning of July, you know, the wheels were really starting to come off and 
my editors at Pan Macmillan approached me and said, do you think, you know, this is something you would be interested in doing? And at first I kind of thought, God, that's mad, doing a snap book, getting it out by Christmas. But then, of course, they did the classic published thing of saying, oh, well, if you couldn't do it, do you think you could recommend us someone who could? Which was a perfect way to make me feel that I absolutely had no choice but to do this. <laughs> so at that point, I basically spent two weeks doing solid interviews with people and one thing that i found is doing a book compared to daily political reporting people are much more willing to speak to you and i'm sure you found this as well james yeah. because people want their sort of place in history in a kind of egotistical sense they also want to put forward their side of the argument in a way that you don't necessarily get elsewhere because in the daily reporting you can just really only scratch the surface of what's going on behind the scenes when you do a book you can really get stuck in and you can give much more space to the pros and cons of a different argument. The other thing I had in particular, of course, was by the time I started researching and then writing The Fall of Boris Johnson, many of his aides were going to be departing Downing Street because the prime minister had about a month left at that point. And so they didn't really have much skin left in the game apart from their reputation and their legacies. They were much more willing to talk, I think, had Boris been a contemporary figure at that point. But, you know, as we've talked about, both of our books have been affected by events that happened since the bulk of them were researched and written. And I think you do have to be careful. And, you know, when I did the audio book for mine last week, I just finished it. I was pleasingly surprised there were not too many howlers that had aged particularly badly. There was one which readers can look out for in the chapter on Ukraine. <laughs> but apart from that, it actually has held remarkably well, which I think I wouldn't say it's due to any foresight the trust here was going to blow. It was more just the fact I was abundantly cautious knowing that the book was going to come out. And it was actually filed before he left Downing Street. So I was having to try and project into the future. Yeah, James, you, you had a slightly different situation in that at least at the time you were researching the bulk of your book, Liz Truss was on the way up. So there wasn't that sense of people being demob happy. But did people speak to you differently than they did as a day-to-day reporter? I do agree. And I think what's really nice about this is that, you know, typically I think most news stories are around, you know, less than a thousand words perhaps and around sort of five, seven hundred. And so often an argument gets condensed down into a line or two. And what the book does is really allow something to breathe. And you can literally allow someone, you know, a whole page if they were to expand on an argument on a point. What was very interesting was that, you know, a typical British premiership may be conducted over years, but this was a matter over weeks. And so the same people we spoke to at some point, say in the August, when she was very much in her, her pomp, in her ascendant, I think perhaps some of the hubris does bleed through into the book because then obviously you speak to them a few weeks later and the picture looked very different. And I think from the week after the mini budget, it was clear she was effectively done. It just depended on the timescale. You know, was she going to be like a Theresa May figure, maybe hang on for a couple of years as she did after this 2017 snap election, or, or was it going to be more quick? And, and clearly it was, and it was the, the, the fracking vote which finished her off. But I did notice that that shift in terms of attitudes. And I think Seb's right to talk about the freedom people feel as different circumstances change, particularly number 10, where I think people are very scared often and, and, and worried about retribution or consequences mm. or anything like that. So the freedom to sort of be candidly and to represent different points and also recognise that in a number 10 operation and a government, you know, there are literally there's, there's dozens, if not hundreds of people involved in one capacity or another. And there are conflicting viewpoints. And it's silly to pretend there's just one government line, as we often have to as news reporters. Yeah, we said they felt freedom, too much freedom in some cases. You, you complained in your introduction that that certain bad actors told you a, a bunch of fibs and needed to be disregarded or only their on the record comments quoted 
surely you should name and shame the guilty men and women. Well, I mean, this is an argument, but as journalists, we, we don't reveal our sources and we can't, unless someone feels comfortable and able to go on the record. And so what I would argue is that we tried our best to to disseminate what can be quite a very difficult, murky world sometimes of people with all sorts of agendas and, and try and get a reasonable portrait. And I think if you read the book that, you know, it was interesting talking about, for instance, the, the one that went quite viral was the chapter on trade. And I, I do still think that if you admired Liz Truss before that and you thought, something highly of her, her Brexit achievements, then I still think you can argue that the ends might justify the means. So we tried to get a balanced kind of picture on that. But perhaps some bad faith actors are already out there and their record speaks for themselves. Yes, but it's just that, that because, and again, you know, you're, you're writing quite close to events. Hmm. People have got agendas. I mean, are you conscious of the extent to which, you know, you rightly say you need to protect your sources, but that sometimes in such circumstances, off the record can be abused. I mean, I don't know whether you'll you'll remember the notorious instance where Sid Blumenthal was outed yeah. for briefing off mm. the record because he was using off the record to lie to Christopher Hitchens, and mm. Hitchens said, "Actually, you know, you don't get the protections when you're." trying to use anonymity to spin something that's not true. Is that something that's conscious of? Yeah, I mean, that was something at the forefront of my mind throughout this whole thing. We tried to sort double source and check things as much as possible. So, for instance, you know, you look at the, the trade chapter, we compared the dates and made sure that, you know, someone was talking based in you know, factual proof and, and dates and times, etc., to try and get that clear as possible. Um, and what was actually interesting, incidentally, was just how often I could misremember the timing of certain things on events and actually you need to go back and double check that and go no this was on that day and that person you know in terms of resignations and the order in which events occurred something to keep in mind certainly but what I do say you know I'd say that that's perhaps no different from everyday journalism and arguably I'd argue perhaps the reverse is true which is that by having the freedom and knowing that the project was kind of done people you know there's less incentive in some ways to try and spin that rather than you know you can put your hands up and say yeah we got this bit wrong rather than you know in the day-to-day when a number 10 spokesperson as we saw at certain times in the last few years will insist something is the line and insist something is true and actually in a matter of hours it proves not to be the case and I'm sure that's something Seb had as well as an issue with his book perhaps. Hugely and I think the thing that happened was because the end of Boris Johnson became this sort of circular firing squad and the kind of the apex of the book is one of the last chapters called The Bunker which is 13,000 words on the kind of the last 24 hours where essentially everyone goes a little bit mad as Boris Johnson is trying to cling on to power at all costs and eventually he does reach the point where he realises he can't do it anymore and some of the more harebrained schemed about calling a snap election or trying to disband the 1922 committee all that stuff was eventually thrown out the window and he took a semi-graceful exit and walked out of Downing Street but when I interviewed the people I did for my book and because I took little time out to be very carefully targeted and say I'm going to speak to one person from this faction, one person from us from this area of the civil service, one person from this area of the cabinet, because I just did not have the time. If, you, if I was writing this book over a number of years, you would flood the piece and try and just speak to everyone possible and then take the time of corroborating all the different accounts to what it might actually be the truth there. But the thing, that, of course, that I found was a lot of people were trying to A, cover their backs and B, trying to pin the blame on certain areas. And you've got to be very careful with that because the way that I did the fall of Boris Johnson was essentially to speak to everybody off the record and then piece together a narrative. Because again, doing the kind of the horse trade about what's on or off the record was not something that I had a huge amount of time to do. And I think it worked relatively well in the sense that I got to a, a decent point of where the actual reality is. And I'm sure future authors, you know, Anthony Seldon is doing his book on Boris at 10. There'll be 
who knows how many Boris biographies in the future, they will be able to get into it in more detail. But as you described it, Sam, that sort of second draft of history, it's gone much further than the first. There's a lot of stuff in the book that was not in the public domain, the day-to-day lobby journalists couldn't get used to. Is it full and comprehensive? Everything? Of course it's not. And I'm sure James would say the same as for his book as well. But for the reader, it gives them real insight into what went on there and help understand these very traumatic events. And, you know, I've been in the lobby on and off for about 10 years now. And, you know, there's a lot of good things about the lobby system. I think when people collaborate, when you do get the the hunt mentality, when you are chasing a big story, that creates a good competitive edge that stops journalists from being lazy. But of course, it does make you incredibly reliant and relaxed about off-the-record briefings. And I think that is obviously something that we need to be vigilant about because, as you mentioned, this is the famous Sid Blumenthal thing. There's other examples near a home in Westminster, you know, in my book, there's that instance about the Chris Pincher affair when the Prime Minister's official spokesperson, he essentially had misled the lobby inadvertently about what had happened and what the Prime Minister knew about sexual harassment allegations. And there was this amazing lobby briefing where Jason Groves, who's described as the Daily Mail, he said to the Prime Minister's spokesperson, So why are you going to be telling us the truth today? And I actually play some of that verbatim because it was a real confrontation moment where senior political journalists felt they'd been misled and lied to, advertently or inadvertently, by the person who was employed by the civil service to tell the truth. Yeah. Now, senior political journalists, as you both are, you both have day jobs. And I'm wondering how, when you're researching a book like this, and it's probably particularly tricky for James, his co-author has a day job at a different publication, when you come upon one of the scoops that's going to be really valuable to this this project, how do you, you know, sort of decide what belongs to you and what belongs to your day job? I mean, I think it depends on which the terms was conducted of an interview, and you know, certainly some people will reflect. I mean, offering the more reflective look back on on what what went right went wrong clearly that wasn't sort of intended for um you know daily news etc but i mean i think at the start of the, the book when we were writing about her whole life because we write about her whole life all leading up until when she comes into downing street you know clearly the stuff in there was really interesting but i wouldn't say that's the kind of you know westminster scoop setting agenda in a way that something about current events i think seb rightly talks about the lobby's perhaps deficiencies and the deficiencies perhaps of our of our setup and, and i think currency is very much what drives the Westminster village and so it was only about the here and now so I'd say that most of it it wasn't an issue really because we're doing a biography about someone and and it was all very interesting and important colour and in background but it wasn't going to be something that drove news gender but there was you know a sort of surreal moment and I wrote about this for the spectator which was about I mean I saw the the 45p tax cut basically killed before my eyes which was the first night of Tory conference I was outside some some grandy at the Tory hotel was having a a drink scene for some journalists and I sort of heard this commotion outside and I went outside and I saw Harry with my co-author with a number 10 apparatic having a full-on back and forth uh, proper like a verbal tennis match and saying you know we're going to run this story now and so that was something he'd picked up from you know a contact with nothing to do with the book and he went out and he published that story at 12 30 at night and so that was really a sort of emblematic incident of whether Liz Trust government was going wrong it was all a bit chaotic you know having this public slangy match in front of god knows how many journalists and cabinet ministers were in the room behind us really quite extraordinary but something like that clearly was a very different sense to a book that was just clearly now events and that wouldn't hold so that's the other thing you've got to have think about will this story hold you know normally we debate as news reporters will this hold a matter of you know hours or days in this case it was holding it weeks and months for the publication of the book yeah 
I think it was less of a challenge for my book because I was reflecting backwards on events. You know, I was not sort of living in the moment as as you and Harry were when you were trying to write yours, James, because, you know, and obviously when I came across things, so the most the most stark revelation of the book is the one that we serialized in the FT weekend about how what you might call the deep state conspired to ensure Boris could not call a snap general election, which was the magic triangle of Buckingham Palace, the civil service and Grain Brady representing the 1922 committee and basically making sure the safeguards were in place. And the safeguards were if Boris tried to call a snap election, it would have been informed the Queen can't come to the phone right now, which is just a fantastic bit of detail about how this country runs, that you stop someone calling election by making sure she's watching, I don't know, match of the day or whatever Her Majesty enjoyed that. <laughs> That particular night but I think you know it's like anything when you interview someone and you're talking to them and they give you a story inadvertently advertently you get the slight thrill in the bottom of your stomach thinking oh this is great how am I going to sign it up when am I going to run it and then of course the second instinct is is someone else going to get there first and how can I get out as quickly as possible that's how I guess most reporters work in that sense but with that particular story I knew the people I was speaking to were so deep in the deep state they were not going to just ring up one of my rivals and give them the same story and you know obviously I'm a full-time staff employee at the Financial Times and there's a lot of crossover with my reporting at the FT and the reporting for the books so you know I was aware and when we came to the serialization that was one of the reasons that it was serialized in my paper because if you were to try and disaggregate what I knew for the day job what I'd heard for the day job what I heard for the book it would sort of be quite difficult to separate them out entirely because they all sort of meld and you know you can hold only one set of thoughts about something in particular at once if that makes sense clearly it was a, a danger sort of a pitfall into one sense but I, I prefer to think of it as an opportunity and I just to say as a reporter it really kind of made me think differently about the events and really informed my reporting and I think hopefully made me better as results so as well as doing the book and hopefully producing a decent book it also I think made better as a kind of Westminster observer and, and setting out on this career yeah now Seb you use a phrase that I think would apply just as well to to James's subject, you, you say that towards the end of Boris's career was a point at which Westminster and the media lost its marbles. <laughs> and can I ask you both, you know, what you felt was the thing, the standout thing that the first draft of history, the contemporary reporting, got wrong? I think the, the most obvious and straightforward thing was the perception that Boris Johnson would just keep on going. And there's a quote at the end of my book about the Teflon politician, because we developed this narrative in Westminster that nothing matters. It's kind of like Donald Trump when he said he could go out on Fifth Avenue, shoot all of his supporters and he'd still win the election. And we developed a sort of similar mentality about Boris Johnson saying he's never going to go. You know, he battles through every single scandal. It's all going to, you know, is never going to be an issue. But ultimately, there was. And I think obviously that came with the Chris Pincher affair, who was his deputy chief whip, who was faced a series of sexual harassment allegations. And when this appalling matter happened, the group think was to say, oh, it's Boris, he'll get through it, it'll be fine. And it simply wasn't. I felt that at the time. James, you might have felt that at the time when you were writing about the Chris Pinter affair. I don't think anyone thought this is going to be the thing that does for him. And I think the quote that sums it up for me is an old friend of Boris Johnson's who I spoke to at the end of the book who says, everyone talks about the Teflon politician. I'll tell you what he actually is. It's like, it's like a Teflon frying pan. You buy it, you think it's new and shiny and it's great. But then bit by bit, the Teflon coating comes away. You use the metal spatula, more of it comes away. Way. And then one day you're cooking an omelette and the omelette sticks to the side. And then what you do in the end, you throw it in the bin. I really hope my friends wouldn't talk about me <laughs> like that. 
I hope they wouldn't use a metal spatula on you either. Exactly. I'm certainly not. But I think it's that sort of quote that gets decided that we had just decided as a sort of political body that he was always going to keep on surviving. And it was clear that actually he wasn't. And it was all going to come to a head. And actually, the other thing I'll just add as well is when he was fined by the Met Police and then we had the full report by Sue Gray, the senior civil servant, into Partygate, When that came out, again, the collective group thing was saying, oh, it's fine, it's Boris, he's got over it, he's going to just keep on going, and he wasn't. So in some ways, we basically gave him too much of the benefit of the doubt and didn't see the seeds that had been sown that led to his downfall. Yeah, I agree, I'd say, about um, you know the benefit of the doubt. And I think if you look back now on how the Liz Trust Premiership ended, and it, it does seem faintly surreal, those long weeks where we spent traipsing around the country listening to those debates and how all the things she was going to do as Prime Minister, and perhaps there was a suspension of judgment. You can point fingers at you know journalists for that. And I, I think that I would counter that by saying you look at what, how the Conservative Party set up that debate, and it basically led to a lot of the questions that should have been asked weren't asked about that I think the the one thing that I talked to people who were involved in that mini budget and around that time was I think more checks and balances pushing back rather than acting as a series of amplifiers and you know to, to accelerate some of the natural instincts so perhaps more questions could be asked and I think that you know I said at the beginning of this talk that you know we thought we'd all should be in for two years and and so perhaps you can say how didn't we see this coming and, and that it could always end in tears I don't think it's necessarily inevitable I don't think that it had to be this way but I think People will be asking, how did the mini budget go so wrong? And that's the key question will be asked. And, and how did we get to a position where the country became an international outlier for rightly or wrong and became temporarily at least a, a global punching bag? But I wonder in retrospect, maybe there will be a kind of vindication for Liz Trust. I think we're already seeing this, you know, look at what Starmer said today about growth and the CBI. And perhaps in a few years time, we'll say, well, she was she was right in her diagnosis of the problem, but wrong in the solution. So that'll be the key question about Liz Truss's time in number 10. Well, that is is one of the interesting things that I, I wanted to ask you both about, because notoriously kind of, well, both of your subjects, you know, left office, if you like, with their stocks pretty bearish and a kind of <laughs> sense that that maybe they, they weren't as popular with journalists and the general public as they might at one point have been. But lots of biographers tend to find themselves batting for their subjects a bit more, feeling, for, you know, did you find the process of writing these books made you more sympathetic to your subjects than the rest of us are, perhaps? Well, I think with Boris Johnson, you know, again, so much has been said or written about him already that I had a pretty well form of what I thought of him as a character before it. And also the thing with Boris Johnson in particular, he's probably the most marmite politician you could think of. People just, you know, people either love him or hate him. There's actually not that huge amount of scales of grey in between it. I think I sort of began the book by thinking, you know, how did this How did this end up this way? And I actually pose a kind of almost essay question at the beginning, which is, was it always going to end this way because of his personality? He's a very mercurial character because he's never shown any interest in the details and the grunt of governing. And that would suggest that at some point, his premiership was going to come to a crash ending. And what I concluded in the book was that, yes, it probably was always going to end this way, but there is definitely a world where it didn't, where, you know, if it had been for events, you know, be it Chris Pincher, been for the pandemic, had it been for the people around him, you can definitely see routes where he stayed and could have gone on and fought and won the next general election and had a very different political trajectory. But I think the one thing that I sort of concluded is that, Boris Johnson has got pretty bad character judgment. He puts trust in people he shouldn't do. 
And that is one of the biggest problems. And I think that's something I feel less sympathetic to him. So overall, I don't really have sympathy because, you know, he went into this game. He acted and governed in a particular way. I think he was very badly let down by his cabinet and his advisors. But that is ultimately for him to bear because of his character judgment. If he'd chosen better people, if he hadn't appointed Chris Pincher, if he'd got a better Downing Street staff, if he hadn't fell out with Dominic Cummings, all those different things could have led to a very different outcome. But that's his fault. He made those calls because he was the leader of the country and also his office, essentially. Personally, I, I did end up quite liking Liz Truss. I think that, um, you know, in private, she can be quite engaging and agreeable personality. And I think it's interesting that a number of people who seem to hold the top job, you think Edward Heath, Theresa May, can have those moments. But as soon as the cameras come down, they sort of shut up and become a very different person, very like Gordon Brown, who become completely different personalities and some of their natural charm, which of course works because you need allies to win over the premiership, doesn't come across on TV and people can say, how on earth did they put that person up? So I think that's one sense in the personal sense. But, you know, do I feel sympathy for her? She, I don't think, made any bones about what she was going to do in office. She was always seen herself as someone who was quite a radical person who wants to get things done from day one. She'd spent 10 years climbing the ministerial greasy pole and she went full throttle at it. And I was always a bit amazed. Some people were surprised that she was as radical as it is. She was going around saying, I've only got two years, I've only got two years. And that's because she never really hidden who she was. And, and you saw who, her, that on the steps of number 10 when she came outside and she gave her final resignation speech and there wasn't much contrition there or you know the Theresa May's tears in 2019 there, there wasn't that and I think she was pretty unapologetic pretty unashamed and I think I do feel some sympathy in the sense of a personal burden on the premiership and, and the tolls it takes but equally I don't think she's someone who engages particularly in much soul searching and we'll just move on to the next thing so I think sympathy is perhaps the wrong word I can understand conflicting feelings and I think that whoever succeeded Boris Johnson for all sorts of reasons would have had some problems but um, I'd say that my summary would be you don't really have to feel much sympathy for politicians really because they wanted the job they've craved it for years and they get it if they make a pig's ear of it ultimately it's mostly down to them yeah with the exception which I think we expect you'd both agree of absolutely ferocious ambition do you see I mean, you're both qualified to answer this. I think, do you see similarities between your subjects? I mean, I think there are obviously some, but Liz Truss and Boris Johnson are pretty much two of the most different politicians you could imagine in some respect. One is hugely charismatic, cannot enter a room without delivering a speech to anyone who's gathered, who loves making jokes, who has a public persona that is at ease of itself. Where I think the similarities are is in their private lives. I think they're both, you know, they've both got quite a lot of, I don't know what the word kind of is. It's not... Adultery? Uh, well, I mean, obviously one could <laughs> one could go down there. I, I actually don't cover that much of Boris Johnson's private life in my book because it's been exhaustively written about in other biographies. But I think there's something amiss in both of their private lives, I think, that I think comes across in both the books. But the difference for Boris Johnson is he has a very well-developed public persona that's almost like a shell that just sort of completely protects him from anything. And, you know, whenever he's asked in public about, you know, how many children does he have, about potential affairs, he just dodges the question, doesn't get into it. Liz Truss does that as well. The only difference is just how sort of well-developed they are. But I think in terms of their political instincts, their persona, their use of politics, their grip of power, I think they're really quite starkly different people. 
Well, I'm going to disagree slightly with, with Seb. I think, first of all, we should say that Boris Johnson is an exceptional persona in British politics. And there's a reason why he was commanded it for, for 20 or 30 years, first as a media creation and then in the political sphere. I think he really is, regardless of legacy, regardless whether they were good or not at the job, of the past, you know, 50, 100 years or so, I mean, he's one of a handful whose personalities really shine out for just, you know, his memorable quotes, his incidents, you know, his image. So I think perhaps it's a little unfair. I think every prime minister would will fall other than perhaps maybe Churchill or one or two others to compare to him in terms of personality or public persona. I do think there's some similarities between the two. And I think actually perhaps you could argue that Liz Truss in some ways mimicked Boris Johnson's kind of boosterish talk and very optimistic and, you know, we can see off the recession, that kind of thing like that. I, I think that both of them try to embrace the kind of Brexit opportunity element and that's probably more her following his example but I think Seb is completely right to say about you need the sort of shell element you need this kind of hide of a rhino you look at what Liz Truss has gone through both with the stories about you know when she, her first battles over the selection issues in 2009 her public career you don't survive in politics unless you can have a you know a really thick skin I think that there are sort of flashes of warm personality which I think appeal to her colleagues in private perhaps more so than Boris who obviously has been famously a, a loner throughout his career. Clearly, they're very different in terms of you know their interests. I'd say you know Boris Johnson has a whole background in you know the arts and and, and history and has written books himself. Whereas Liz Truss was very much a policy wonk. You know her publications. I found myself I have to say going to going to sleep reading a lot of them from the days of Reform Think Tank when it was just very much based <laughs> in numbers and numeracy and technical skills. It's extraordinary this detail that she used mental arithmetic questions yeah. to kind of weed out her staff. I spoke to several members of her staff. Yeah, the first thing she would just throw a maths problem at them and see how they, they dealt with it. Just a very different approach. And actually, I'd say that that makes her an exception among most certainly conservative and I can't imagine many ministers would have it like that but they are different but I think there are some important similarities and that's of course perhaps why a lot of the Boris support went to Liz Truss because they thought he'd, he'd continue his legacy more than other people I'd say and uh, there are certain elements of the boosterish agenda which she had uh, an affinity with. When you talk about boosterishness and rhino-like hide I think it's in your book James the, the word bounce back ability yes. is used. Ron Atkinson yeah. And it's, it's one that's also applied in spades to Boris. Uh, have we seen the last of these guys in front rank politics? Oh, Boris Johnson will never go away, essentially. <laughs> I don't know exactly where and what he will do, but, you know, he's already, obviously, his his analogy of Cincinnatus going back to his farm at the, at the when he left Downing Street <laughs> and Hasta La Vista, baby. I mean, you know, he knows exactly what he's doing with all that, but I think some of it is sort of tongue-in-cheek, and people say, you know, well, Churchill came back or Howard Wilson came back, but in both those instances, they were both leaders of their political parties when they returned to Downing Street. Boris Johnson is not leader of the Tory party and I don't quite see the circumstances where he does directly come back because you know the Tories are probably likely to lose the next general election if the opinion polls are correct at the moment which means a spell in opposition it could be short it could be long but opposition is hard work and I'm just not sure I could see Boris Johnson looking forward to the grunt work of trying to hold a Keir Starmer government to account then get ready to win again and I think the political caravan does move on quite quickly you know everyone goes on about how much politics has sped up over the past 10 years but I think I think when I read my book and even when I read, read James's book, they both feel like dog years ago as opposed to just a couple of months ago. So for me, he will always be in the ether. He will always be talking about coming back. But I'm sceptical if it will ever actually happen. That's really interesting. I, In some ways, I think perhaps maybe 
as unlikely as this may be, there's more of a chance for Liz Truss to make a front bench return than, than Boris. I agree with that. I would say that for, for two reasons. I'd say one, I think Boris perhaps has more outside interests and you can see him having a, another life, a second life or third career after journalist, politician, something else and earning money. And that could be easier outside Parliament. So none of that privileges committee going on. He could just doesn't have to declare his earnings from speeches in the registered members' interest. You can see him going off and doing something. I think the second thing of all is Liz Truss, she has already indicated she's going to stay in the Commons. And there's been no suggestion, I think, so far, as far as I can tell, that she's going to be standing down. There's a scenario you can see, which the Tories lose 150 seats the next election. They're looking around for someone to fill out their shadow cabinet, shadow front bench. She's not bad in the House of Commons as a as a punchy parliamentary debater. She's not great on media, but she, she was better in Parliament than a lot of her contemporaries. And you can see her kind of getting a, a role as part of someone else's shadow cabinet, perhaps. And that would represent something, some kind of redemption of a kind. And I think also, as I say, that as Britain's problems with growth are going to continue throughout the 2020s, there will be some elements of the party who argue that she was vindicated. And I think there are some on the back benches who certainly see her fall as not proof that her arguments were defeated, just that she was at the time. Would she take such a job, incidentally? I mean, it's quite unprecedented. I mean, I'm not a political historian, but I can't think off the top of my head of very many instances of former prime ministers coming back at a if you like, a more junior role in cabinet. Well, the most famous one, of course, is Alec Douglas Hume, who lost the 1964 general election and came back as foreign secretary under Ted Heath. So that would be a very similar analogy to that. But you're right. I don't think there's any others, James. You've got a better encyclopedic knowledge than I do. No, no. I mean, that, that was the last time. But I mean, you then look at more recent Tory leaders. You know, William Hay came back as foreign sec. IDS served as DWP under Cameron. I mean, it is unlikely. I'm prefacing that. I don't, it might not happen. But I just look at for instance, if Liz Truss does stay on in Parliament, you've already got Theresa May, who's kind of sewn up the whole grandee, respectable, staying in Parliament, doing her duty gig, you know, having David Cameron run off after losing that 2016 referendum. So if that's done, you've got Boris doing all the, the big set piece things, as it were, you know, all the corporate gigs. I mean, there's a potential where you could see her coming back in that role. She's always been very hardworking. Politics has been her life for most of the past 20 years or so. I think it is unlikely, but I mean, you could see her perhaps going returning to something like trade or making a case. And I think her punchiness and ambition and drive would all perhaps be of some consolation to a party that was looking at its wounds in opposition, potentially. It's unlikely, but it might happen. Well, and it would be a consolation to future paperback editions. <laughs> um, James Hill, Sebastian Payne, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.